This podcast is brought to you by the Kansas Hospital Association. Welcome to Plain Spoken. I'm Karen Brayman with the Kansas Hospital Association. Our guest today is Shane Hudson, President and CEO of CKF Addiction Treatment. We're having a conversation with Shane and Audrey Dunkel, KHA's Vice President of Government Relations and also the staff lead of our Behavioral Health Committee. Welcome, Shane and Audrey. Shane, why don't we start out with you introducing yourself and describing CKF Addiction Services. Yeah, well, thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Always uh, glad to speak with KHA and the great people over there. Um, You know, CKF Addiction Treatment's been around since 1967. We just finished our 55th year of providing services um, in 2022. So that's really exciting. tied for the first place that was doing addiction treatment as far as the types of services we provide. So really cool. Um, We have all kinds of services across the state via telehealth. Um, So we've been doing peer mentoring and outpatient services, intensive outpatient and medication assisted treatment via telehealth. Uh, We also have a women's program and have residential and detoxification services. Um, Those are located in Salina, Kansas. So there are a lot of different things we're doing and just expanding the types of services and how we can reach individuals who might be in need of care. Thanks, Shane. And we just recently learned that you have a a new grant that's going on. Do you want to speak about that just briefly before we have Audrey talk about what she's working on? Yeah, um, so we applied for the CanHouse ARP uh, through KDAS and SAMHSA to support a housing program for individuals with substance use disorder. Um, The focus of our grant application was really expanding designated women's programs in Kansas based off of the model um, that we've been providing in Salina for the last few years. So we did receive a grant award for that. Uh, the announcement hasn't been made yet, so we haven't got to dig into the nuts and bolts, but I've been meeting with the city of Topeka um, and someone locally in Topeka to find the right space to start the program. So in 2023, I, I predict that we're going to have that stood up and, and moving forward. There's only um, eight designated women's programs in Kansas currently. It's where women can stay and our program can stay for 90 days and have their children with them while attending intensive outpatient Um, There's not one in Topeka currently, so getting that program into Topeka will be a really good thing. That's really exciting in increasing access to services in such a needed area. Well, Audrey, do you want to talk about what you're working on in the area of behavioral health? Sure. Thanks, Karen. Well, one of the responsibilities that falls under my title is heading up our behavioral health activities and working with our behavioral health committee. So Shane and I have had the opportunity to work together um, as he is a past chair of that committee. Always helpful to get groups of stakeholders together to talk about the big behavioral health space, which includes both mental health and substance use disorder. Now we know in the last year or so, our legislature has invested a lot of funding in certified community behavioral health clinics. They're in the process of that. They've put into place some crisis intervention centers. Uh, They're still working on the regulatory process there. The most recent conversation they've been having is how to add more mental health beds in South Central Kansas, so down in the Sedgwick County area. So they've had a special committee on that. I think this is all in recognition of the stress that COVID has caused people. I think people who maybe had some behavioral health issues as far as the substance use side, COVID was just tough on everybody. And we're seeing a lot of need. The challenge for hospitals has been how often these people appear in our 
emergency rooms into hospitals that don't have mental health services. And so they're not really equipped to deal with that. But then our state hospitals don't have beds. And that becomes a challenge because what do you do with this patient that you can't really provide services for, um, but they need to be in a safe place because they've been reviewed as someone who's a danger to themselves or others. So we've really been looking at how do we address this strange gap in services that probably wasn't anticipated when the statutes were written, how to address these issues, but things that we do need to be addressing now while these new programs get into place and hopefully take some of the pressure off of our hospitals and all of our providers in the behavioral health space going forward. Well, and you covered a lot in that, Audrey, and really just speak to how much is going on in the behavioral health space right now. And I want to bring up one thing you mentioned kind of early on, and Shane, that is the impact of the pandemic. Can you speak to the use of telehealth to provide access to services and then what that looks like now in terms of um, increasing access with technology to substance use disorder treatment services? Yeah, so I I have heard from our hospital and clinic partners um, of the increase of patients with substance use um, coming into the EDZRs of hospitals. I think there's there's something to be said of that when someone's acutely experiencing these symptoms of their um, condition, and then how we bridge the gap to a service. Uh, people are often ready when they're feeling not well, and they're saying, this can't happen again. I don't like how I feel. I can't stay in this space. But that window can close very quickly. And if we're not connecting people right away, they're likely to say no tomorrow until they're ready again. And we can't predict when that is. Um, so in hospital settings, having that linkage readily available is, is important. How do we keep people um, engaged in the right care, get them connected to that care, keep hospitals focusing on individuals who need to be in that setting for those physical health conditions, um, get people connected to behavioral health resources that might need to not need to be coming into the hospital as many times as they are um, when they're in those, those acute states. So there's something to be said there about having that integrated staff um, through partnerships or contracts or creating it yourself um, at the site where people step into and say, I'm not doing well right now and I want to do something right now. Now to extend past that, what about when someone says, yes, I want to do something. And at that point in time, where are they located and how hard is it to get access to the services they need? So I will tell you in Kansas right now, um, yes, more people are showing up in hospitals. Yes, more people have started to show up in treatment, which is a good thing because we're only seeing about 10% of those people who have the need showing up in treatment settings. That's been that data that's been haunting us for years and years and years and years now. Um, and just over the last few years, I've seen because of telehealth, as far as CKF is concerned um, with our services, we've seen an increase uh, slowly start to grow. Um, so being available via telehealth and not saying you have to get connected for an assessment to start treatment today, or you have to go to detoxification or residential because maybe that individual is not ready to do that. But even by saying you can connect with our peer mentors for free from your home and a um, open group support meeting, or you can connect with one of our peer mentors individually over the telephone even. There's things like that that we're able to reach people in those moments and not make it too burdensome, not too heavy, not something that they're like, well, I'm not sure that I need that yet, or I wonder how much it's going to cost, or if I'm going to be forced to go to treatment that I'm not ready for, which people aren't forced, but there's a stigma you know, through the process. Um, we've seen over the last few years that we went from about 1,966 patients served in 2019 
to 2100 and 2020, 2300 and 2021. And I think we're going to land at about 2700 uh, unique individuals served here in 2022. We thought we'd get close to 3000 based off of where we were at over the summer. But that's what we're seeing is that growth happen. And we're seeing more and more people say, telehealth is the way that I want to access care. About 75% of the people we're serving say they prefer telehealth over in-person services. So right now in Kansas, there is more access available than ever before to addiction healthcare, um, which gets me concerned about the emergency order and you know what's going to happen when this gets rolled back. And I cross my fingers that it doesn't because we've created options for people. It doesn't mean telehealth is right for everyone or what they want for every single person. It does mean that it creates more options for people and options are good when you're looking at healthcare and how you want to engage in care. I want to circle back to an issue that both of you touched on, and that is behavioral health bed space, a top concern in Kansas. So Shane, could you comment on how this bed space issue may also be impacting substance use disorder treatment services? Um, And then Audrey, uh, from kind of an advocacy standpoint, as well as what state efforts are going on to address that lack of bed space. Shane, why don't you start? Yeah, so I will tell you, man, starting November 1 might have been the date, the first time since uh, since COVID started uh, that we've had all 30 beds open at our addiction uh, treatment center in Salina. So our co-ed adult 30 bed facility. So to have all 30 beds open is very valuable because there's not enough beds in the state for everyone to get the care they need. Um, and you run into that at times, even before COVID and then COVID happened. And, and that effect really was the staffing behind the model we have to have in place to deliver quality service. Um, yes, people getting sick at times can affect staffing as well, and patients getting sick can affect your ability to keep patients in care. Um, we had two periods where we had to close for maybe a week or two, and we had patients planning on where they were going to go, and they were gone, and make sure everyone was healthy before they came back in. So we were able to get most of those patients back in care after that period. Um, but most of the time, I'd say our maximum's been maybe 24 beds open versus the 30. Uh, maybe times when it dipped below that, uh, having staff where we had a counselor position open for a year and a half at least, and it will only be filled in December after someone uh, gets their temporary license who's been going to school and, and training for this. Um, so we had a residential director and two staff instead of the residential director and, and staff, I mean counselors. Um, we we're missing the third counselor. So residential director has been doing a lot more, serving a caseload. The state of Kansas uh, through KDADS did allow us to have more patients seen on each caseload by each counselor, which allowed us to keep the number of beds open as high as it could be, but still not reaching that maximum because there's a limit to how many patients detox or residential a counselor can manage at a time. Um, But that's been valuable and that extends, I believe, until March that each of our clinicians can see a few more patients than typical. Um, So for us, that challenge is finding those in-person staff, to provide the service, to keep it consistent over time. Um, Also, you know, those effects of COVID, which I haven't seen it in those largest ways uh, for months now. Um, So I think we're doing okay there with our process and protocols. And we were, it's just those things that you can't avoid in certain circumstances. So that's a real challenge on our end is seeing our residential facility 
break even or hit positive numbers as far as those financial underpinnings and making a sustainable long-term service that can continue to be that valuable service for those who need it um, really is attached to getting staff to be at our facility in person versus all the other options that are out there. We're competing against ourselves in some senses saying, well, there's telehealth positions, um, but we also pay our in-person staff a little bit more than our telehealth staff. There's some incentives to people having to be in the office versus being able to work from home. Um, so there's some things you can do there just to make it a different type of service, but it's a challenge. Interesting. But on the mental health side, what we continue to see, and some of this is, of course, exacerbated by the fact that the state hospitals, Larned State Hospital and Osawatomie State Hospital, have a limited number of beds. Mm -hmm. Osawatomie specifically because their space needs to be updated for safety, and that's an expensive process. That means you've got to close down beds and move people while those get updated. And so, you know, the legislature has been having this conversation about, well, we need more beds. And I think, Shane, you really hit on it when you were talking about staffing and in that, well, that's great if you put in 50 more beds, but you still have to find the staff to staff that. And it could be that you're just trading staff around and you're not actually creating more capacity uh, to take care of those patients you know, what are the right solutions short-term and long-term as far as an advocacy perspective of how we talk about getting more providers credentialed or getting people into the workplace early um, as far as, you know, middle of their training. At what point is that an appropriate thing? Is that anything that you have talked about from the substance use disorder perspective? Yeah. So internally at our agency, also with KDADS, also with BSRB, I'm on the Addiction Counselor Advisory Group there. We've talked about what those steps are to bring someone from maybe that person in training through their degree and licensure to provide care. Um, Some of that discussion has been, you know, in the past, we used to have counselors in training, uh, which went away as licensure happened with the licensed addiction counselor status, um, which was a good thing. But I think some of the negatives there were, how do you how do you keep bringing people through degree programs that can be valuable to them before they maybe even achieve their bachelor's or master's degree? Um, the programs across Kansas, a uh, few of them went away as far as supporting those people through that process. Um, so it's been challenging to get all the right people connected to the right program with the correct requirements to get the licensures they need to uh, provide care. So I think some of our process has been, because I've seen with the last two counselors that um, they were peer mentors first. So Kansas certified peer mentors are individuals who are themselves in uh, sustained recovery of at least a year, take the trainings with the state. There's multiple, a uh, couple weekends at least that they have to attend and throughout periods of their uh, first year, they have to take these trainings. So that's a good thing. But when you talk about reimbursement of peer mentors versus reimbursement of counselors, when you talk about caseload requirements and especially residential care, when you need a certain number of counselors for the number of patients you're serving, um, we need some assistance there. How do you close that gap with something like a counselor assistant? Um, How do you manage those caseloads? If you have two counselors, you're missing the third position, but you have a counselor in training to assist, uh, maybe even two counselors in training. How can we pay staff to also help us to see the number of patients we need to see, um, still get reimbursed for the services we're providing and keep care moving forward. That's a challenge because we can't afford to just sit in this gap and say, well, there's, there's no counselors yet and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. We need to find creative solutions. And I think peer mentors are great where they're able to provide support and quality care. And we've done that, but there's certain levels of care such as residential care 
where you can't, you know, substitute in or, or utilize uh, those staff in the same way. So we're trying to be creative. We do need some solutions um, along these lines that the state and, you know, BSRB are considering. What does that mean for master's level clinicians to have some kind of status or temporary status before they get their full licensure or finish their master's degree fully if they're a couple of years out, what have you? What about bachelor's level staff who could be licensed addiction counselors and before they finish that degree, but they're on track to do it? What kind of temporary licensure support can we uh, provide there? So some good ideas. Um, I think hopefully something will come from that process, uh, but we're waiting to see. Shane, something that you talked about earlier was integrating substance use disorder treatment into medical settings. Mm -hmm. Can you give some examples of that? We've had a few staff um, at Salina Regional for, man, I started at CKF in 2010. Maybe it was just around that time. So I would say for maybe 10, 12 years, we've had staff at Salina Regional. For the last maybe seven years, we've had staff at Stormont Vale. Um, what that's looked like for us is placing a mixture of counselors, um, Kansas certified peer mentors, and at times nurses that we've trained into the position that, that work for us uh, via contract being placed in those settings and meeting with patients who come through the ED who have the need uh, through a screening process to meet with our staff and get a consultation. Patients are met with, we build rapport, understand their need, work with them to understand what they're ready to do, what might be recommended as a service, completing assessment before they discharge from the hospital, um, if they're ready to complete an assessment and they would like to do that, connecting them directly to detox or residential care in many cases where we provide transportation for the patient to get where they need to go, uh, get them back to their home community after they finish uh, that treatment level and connected to the next level of care following residential. So that's been a really great thing in those hospital settings. And we've seen the recidivism rate decrease for those patients who've said yes to treatment. In big ways, you see that year over year, tracking that patient and how many times they had visited the hospital or the ED specifically prior to working with us versus how many times after and just seeing it go down, go down, go down. Um, so that's been a great thing. We're trying to do that in more uh, settings. There's a couple hospitals we're talking to right now. And basically we use our data from the systems we're in and I review their volume. I apply the data we've seen to the volume of their hospital and I recommend a structure of staff to provide that care to patients coming in. Well, it sounds like very effective too, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Audrey, thinking about you know, effective ways to integrate substance use disorder treatment into medical settings, like the example that Shane gave, are there other issues or top concerns that you all are working on through the Behavioral Health Committee, or um, you know, in terms of advocacy that you want to touch on before we wrap up? You know, I think probably the most um, specific thing, so besides generally figuring out how we improve access to the system, um, is going back to that idea of this, it's not a clinical observation, but it's basically observation of a mental health patient in the ER while they wait for placement in a state hospital. And that happens in the ER. Sometimes it happens from law enforcement because they come in, they get arrested, they get evaluated by the local community mental health center. They need to go to a state hospital, but then they have to be placed someplace safe, not in a jail setting, um, to await their bed in, in the facility. And so what we find is there's no reimbursement for that. So Shane, you were talking about, you know, the peer mentoring and, and no payment for that, but that's a valuable service, again, right. that's in the continuum of care. 
um, this is within the continuum of care is keeping that person safe until they can get to treatment. And there's no, you can't bill for it because there are no codes for just watching a person and making sure they're safe. Um, and certainly from the law enforcement perspective, there just isn't any way for them to get reimbursed for that. So looking at trying to put in a program for five years that provides some funding for that through KDADS. Um, and then you know, at the end of five years, hopefully these other methodologies that have been put in place in the mental health space will reduce the number of people that, um, you know, end up in the ER waiting. And so it's also a way to keep track of that, because if you're paying for that, then you're also keeping track of how many people are doing that. So are we effective after five years so that we can reduce funding for that? Now, we don't expect that we will never have someone who waits in a hospital ER for a bed at a state hospital because it, it's going to happen. There are those circumstances. I'm sure, Shane, you see the same thing with substance use disorder. They come in um, in a place where they have to wait till they can go to get treatment. Right. Um, and so that's probably the biggest one, I think, that maybe we really haven't talked about specifically. But I know, you know, our behavioral health committee, again, Shane, is on that committee. We have law enforcement on there. We have a number of groups on there trying to figure out how in this continuum of behavioral health care, we do all work together. And the staffing issue is a really good one to try to go, OK, what are our options to make sure patients get care? Because as we know, Really, even though we talk about money and payment, our goal is to provide good care for patients. Right. No margin, no mission. That's right. Well, thank you both. You've given us a lot to think about and are doing great work in this area of substance use disorder treatment within kind of the overall behavioral health uh, picture. Uh, any final comments, Shane and Audrey, that you both have? Um, yeah, I would say the, um, the state opioid response grant has been a good thing for Kansas. Um, I met Karen, man, how many years ago was it in Western Kansas the first time I met you? Right, I think so. <laughs> Southwest Kansas. So the opioid grant uh, being available coming down to Kansas from the federal level has been a huge um, positive opportunity for CKF and I think the systems of care across the state because the effect I have seen is that I know so many people across health systems, across um, these different areas of healthcare, and we've been able to link in valuable ways, and I've been able to learn from them about their sides of, you know, each respective fence. So that's been a great thing that you've seen the systems kind of come together and say, like, we need to do something different, and having valuable conversations and creating mean meaningful change in, in very big ways. Um, there's a lot of things left to do. So that funding isn't, you know, the answer, but I think it's been a really good thing to just bind people closer together and say, how do we focus on this patient provide good care? Because in some cases it's no longer, well, I wish we had the funding for that. It's like, okay, here's some money. Now, what are you going to do about it? We've been able to create some solutions. Um, as we go along, it is going to take that kind of teamwork and cooperation across the state or within communities. And it's going to take those funding solutions, but I know plenty of agencies and organizations um, are willing to do the work to prove the outcomes to then show it can be sustainable. And, you know, there, there's that kind of thing where I, I think here in Kansas, we say, well, let's do something valuable and help people and show it works. And then let's connect that to something to get the funding we need to make it happen long term. Um, that's a great thing, just being in Kansas and seeing people say We've, we need to do it different. We can't just sit here and, and complain about the barriers. We need to create solutions. 
And we really appreciate working with you. It's been a good partnership so far, and, and we look forward to continuing it in the future. Awesome. Appreciate it. For more information on Kansas health issues, go to kha-net.org.